Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Podcast Reads, Season 1, An Adam and Eve Story, Aftermath, by Jan Thomas. I'm reading this off of the archive.org website, the Internet Archive, and this particular edition may or may not have flaws in it, and you'll know them when I come across them. And um, also, there probably are some words that I'll butcher in regards to pronouncing them. This is Chapter 3, Jesus' History. There are three passages in the Bible which concern us from the viewpoint of history alone. They are in the New Testament, and they are Matthew 27-34 and 45-50, Mark 15-33-37, and finally, John 19, 28-30. So first, there is an excerpt of Matthew twenty-seven thirty-four. They gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And then Matthew twenty-seven 45-50 is, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calls for Elias. Straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And then, um, oh, and then the second one, the second thing we need to consider is Mark 15, 33 through 37, which is, And when the sixth hour was come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood when they heard it said, Behold, he calls for Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed, saying, Let alone... Let us see whether Elias Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And finally, the John passage. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was a set of vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon a hyssop put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Luke had a totally different view of the sequences of events. He didn't even record whether Jesus said he was thirsty, as John did. He didn't record the words Jesus spoke as Matthew and Mark did. Starting with the verse where he did agree with others, let's look at Luke 24, 44-46. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. 
And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, unto thy hands I command my spirit, command my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. You can see that Luke omitted the scene where Jesus spoke the words Matthew and Mark quoted and interpreted, which many in the crowd thought were Jesus saying he was thirsty, and of which John thought so little of it that he merely quoted Jesus as saying, I thirst. Luke also admitted that action after Jesus' strange words of someone thinking Jesus was thirsty, putting vinegar on a sponge, then putting the sponge on a reed and giving the vinegar to Jesus. Matthew and Mark and John related the sponge and vinegar scene, which Luke omitted completely. It would seem that we should pass by Luke as a credible witness. Now let's discuss those words which Jesus spoke so vividly described by e, Matthew and Mark. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Both Matthew and Mark put a question mark after their quote of Jesus' words. When Jesus spoke them, he created quite a bit of confusion. Some said, hey, he's calling for Elias. Maybe he'll come and save him. Others said he was thirsty. John simply said, Jesus said, I thirst. Someone in the crowd, thinking Jesus had said he was thirsty, soaked a sponge in vinegar, put it on a reed, and held it to Jesus' mouth. We must give immense credit to Matthew and Mark for writing down as best they could the sounds the word Jesus spoke. From what they wrote, we know that no such words existed in Hebrew at that time, nor did they exist in Aramaic, nor in Greek, nor in any other language of which we know for that area in that time. Why did Jesus in his dying moments use a language which no one else knew? The best Matthew and Mark could do was say, which is being interpreted, and that is to say, thank God for their honesty. So the difference between Matthew's Eli, Eli, and Mark's Eloi, Eloi, we must consider the crowd's reaction. The only reaction quoted is both Matthew and Mark is Jesus having said, Elias. And we're reduced to a choice we would have to go along and if we are reduced to a choice, we'd have to go along with Eli. I searched and searched and could not find the words in any language either. In desperation, I turned to the parent language, prehistoric Mayan or Naga. There the words were, as large as life. Heli, heli, lama sabachthani. I am fainting, I am fainting. Darkness is overcoming me. Since Jesus is quoted as having cried with a loud voice in both Matthew and Mark, Perhaps we should quote the translation to be, I am fainting, I am fainting, darkness is overcoming me. This opens up a bucket full of questions and controversies. Imagine what I was forced faced with as soon as I found the translation. I was faced with the mountain to climb. If I didn't climb it, I would never sleep again. I knew that, like solving the puzzles of cataclysmology, this problem would never leave me alone, mainly for the sake of my own mind and my dear wife's curiosity. A hundred questions crossed my mind. Well, maybe not a hundred, but a plethora of them anyway. Why did Jesus in his dying moments speak a language which no one whom we know of heard him speak before? Was he naturally reverting to a language he had spoken as a prime language in earlier years? If so, where would he have picked up that language and used it habitually? Let's again look to the Bible as history. A good place to start is Luke 2.41, where Jesus' parents are mentioned. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. 
And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him out, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. When they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is that ye ye sought me? Are you not known that I must be about my father's business? This one story tells us that Jesus had to be a genius of his day. Also, it tells us that he had an affinity for dropping in at the temple to share minds with the adult intelligista. One more fact should be taken into account in our summation of contributing factors, and that is that there is a total of only 55 days of Jesus' life accounted for in the Bible. We are left with him at age 12 in the incident above, and brought back into his life when he was about 30 in Luke 3.23. This leaves about 18 years of Jesus' life unaccounted for in the Bible. Is there any other source? In the mid-1800s, the British army was stationed in the northern India, near the town of Ahodia, prehistorically known as Ajudea. Ajudia. I don't know how you say it. A-D-J-U-D-I-A. Ajudia. They discovered that there was a temple there, of which there were only three of that kind in India. In in pre-Brahman India, all temples were of this kind, and they were called Nakal temples. Official languages of the temples, the British found out, was Naga, or prehistoric Mayan. Curiously enough, there was a tribe in the extreme north of, the, in, of India called the Naga tribe. This tribe, even today, speaks pure Naga as their everyday language. They told the British of Jesus' having been there as a late teenager, young adult, who attended the Nakal temple as a student and graduate of the temple. He was especially remembered through tradition because he was a genius. Students were taught rigorous courses from mathematics to medicine, languages, what we call ESP, out-of-body travel, metaphysics as a science, and natural healing. The course was so rigorous that it usually took the lifetime of a normal person to graduate from the temple. Students had to learn Naga. Graduates were called Son of God. It's interesting that Jesus never referred to himself as Son of God, but always Son of Man. Naga's tale of Jesus includes Jesus' becoming a student as a young man, and through his genius, he went through the courses in record time as a student, master, and graduate at 25 to 30 years old. On investigating, I found that the travel was quite common between the Holy Land and India in Jesus' time. He could have made the trip there very easily at 15 to 20 and back just as easily 10 to 15 years later. We're also informed of Jesus' proclivity for dropping into temples just to have the intellectual and spiritual discourse with adult intelligista. Imagine his going to India, happening into the Nikal temple, dropping in for some discourse, and afterward deciding that there was the place for him to stay and really learn. 
Spending 10 to 15 years learning to speak and write Naga and speak it as his sole language for that duration certainly would account for his reverting to it on the cross as his natural language. There is another point in question which is to do with the doctrine taught at the temple. The entire philosophy of religion as Jesus taught it was exactly as he had learned it at the temple. Never would he have entertained the thought that God would or might forsake him under any circumstances whatsoever on or off of the cross or anywhere. Only humans would. At this point, we should summarize everything we can about the events surrounding the moments when Jesus spoke those words on the cross and apply whatever reasoning we can in order to cover every aspect involved toward either verifying or refuting our translation of his words. First, our only reasonable source of the words Jesus actually spoke is through Matthew and Mark. Second, it is abundantly clear that Jesus spoke in a loud voice. There is a difference between listening to sounds and hearing them. Matthew and Mark listened to him to the extent that they were able to write down the phonetics of what Jesus said to the best of their ability. We should recognize that their attention to the details of the phonetics was enhanced by the loudness with which Jesus spoke. John didn't pay much attention to detail, he just heard Jesus speak loudly and assumed that Jesus said merely, I thirst, without even attempting to listen to or write down the phonetics of the words Jesus spoke. Third, only primary source of the meaning of those words is through Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew said, that is to say, Mark said, which is being interpreted, and John said, Jesus said, I thirst. It is clear that Matthew and Mark were not translating, but giving us their best guess what the words Jesus spoke meant. John just guessed outright. The most interesting aspect of Matthew and Mark's recording is that the phonetic of Jesus' words and their meaning are so nearly alike, with only one syllable, Lee, as recorded by Matthew and Loy, as recorded by Mark being the only difference. It appears that each had his own memory as referred to by those in the field of aptitude studies as tonal memory of the sounds of the syllable, suggesting independent recording of the phonetics by each of them. However, their interpretation of the meaning of Jesus' words are precisely the same, suggesting that they conferred with each other comparing their interpretations and arriving at a mutually agreed upon interpretation of what Jesus meant by what he spoke loudly. Certainly neither of them compared the memories with Luke or John. It appears that we must honor Matthew and Mark's accuracy in recording the sounds of the word Jesus spoke. Plausible, since Jesus spoke loudly. Fourth, we have no secondary source of the words Jesus spoke. We only have secondary sources through Matthew, Mark, and John who tell us about the crowd at the scene and their reaction to what we thought Jesus said. What they thought Jesus said. Some of the crowd said, Hey, he's calling Elias. Elias. E-L-I-A-S. Maybe he'll come and get him down off the cross, as if it were a big joke. Some others said, Hey, he's thirsty. Someone give him a drink. So someone ran to a bowl of vinegar, put a sponge on a reed, soaked it in the vinegar, and held it to Jesus' lips. Of course, John adds his bit by writing, Jesus said, I thirst. It is obvious that there was a great amount of confusion resulting from Jesus' words, with three known interpretations of those words. Isn't it interesting and provocative that those three versions differed from each other to the extent that there is absolutely no comparison between them? Fifth, 
It is a fact that Jesus' words did not exist in any known language at that time, including Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Eli expressly was not a part of the Hebrew tongue. It was, it was entered into that language since then to mean my God. It seems strange that those who fostered and shouted for his crucifixion would be the ones to adopt one of the words Jesus spoke on the cross into the language. Sixth, we must take into the consideration Jesus' physical condition at the time he spoke those strange words. Contra to one of the popular myths, Jesus was not nailed to the cross through his hands and spaces through his bones and his lower feet heading to his toes. It was a common form of execution in that time, and always the nails were driven through a space in the wrist bones, as if by driving through if driven through the hands, the crucified could pull his hands off the nails easily on the cross. Plus, the same conditions existed in the feet of the crucified. In order to keep him from pulling his feet off the nails, the nail or nails had to be driven through the space between the upper foot bones. Therefore, the crucified literally became a prisoner of the cross. And the only way to get him off the cross was to pull the nails. The crucified was nailed to the cross in such a way that with his knees bent somewhat, he could hang He could hang by his arms and rest his legs. After a while, his diaphragm would enter the early stages of paralysis, and he would feel from suffocation coming on. <coughs> then he would straighten his legs, standing on his nailed feet, providing relief for his arms from bearing the stress of holding up his body, thereby relieving the stress on his diaphragm, leading to paralysis and suffocation. Consequently, he endured a, continu- a running continuum of up and down, up and down, up and down for hours and hours. Those responsible for performing the crucifixion had a way of stopping this endurance test. They simply broke the legs of the crucified so that he couldn't stand on them anymore. He was forced to hang by his arms without sucrus. He soon fell into paralysis of his diaphragm and died of suffocation. It is known that Jesus suffered scourging for some time before his walk to crucifixion with Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled by soldiers to carry his cross. Scourging meant torture, with whips with barbs and the ends of the lashes of each whip. Those barbs ate deeply through Jesus' skin and into his flesh. It had been excruciatingly painful. While on his walk to Golgotha, Jesus said, was still sufficiently conscious to have made the walk successfully. He had not yet entered a state of deep shock. There were three men crucified at the time, at the same time on Golgotha. Jesus, of course, was in the middle. The other two had not been tortured before the crucifixion. After they were on the crosses, Jesus entered into deep shock. In the, that condition, it was impossible for him to feel any pain. While in that condition, he lost consciousness. And while entering that state, he said loudly, as quoted by Matthew, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It has been popularly assumed that pain drove Jesus to say those words. Impossible. He was feeling no pain. He was in deep shock, on the verge of passing out. It is most logical that he was saying, I am fainting, I am fainting, darkness is overcoming me. It is most illogical that Jesus would be complaining in a loud voice that God had forsaken him. As I said before, he knew absolutely that only humans would do that. This is an apropos time to consider the Shroud of Turin, the image on or in. It shows the barbed gouges of a whipping scourge, plus showing that the legs of the victim were not broken, as Jesus's were not. 
Further, the image shows irrefutable signs that the victim had been crowned with the crown of thorns, as Jesus had been. Further still, the image shows irrefutable signs of the victim having been crucified in the standard manner. Those parts of the image, the proof of barbed whipping and scourging, the proof of the victim being crucified, the unbroken legs, which was most unusual in a crucifixion, and the crown of the thorns worn by the victim all point to Jesus as being the wearer of that controversial shroud. The crown of thorns is the most powerful indicator of Jesus being the wearer. Who else but Jesus would have been so crowned as a part of the scourging? Scourging itself being almost never employed. And crowned for whatever reason, in Jesus' case, for derision as king of the Jews. There is a last subject to consider, how the image was made on the Shroud of Turin. This is a point of great controversy among scientists. How it was accomplished is known only to those of us who have found how nature makes gravity. Now we come to a disputant subject. If you stick your toe in the water, it either gets burned or frozen. It could create a controversy in a millisecond, or even maybe even a microsecond. In one aspect, I have a distinct advantage, for I know how nature makes gravity. Once we understand the process, the procedure for us to produce man-made gravity is to duplicate nature's process in a controlled fashion. Once we understand this, we can expand our understanding to include propulsion, communications, and weaponry. Any nation, large or small, which finds this process will have the world at its mercy. Any nation which discovers how to use it for any other, any one of those three purposes automatically has the other two. Any nation, even the smallest, having all three of these processes will control our planet with unchangeable, unchallengeable invincibility. <coughs> also, we can understand just about every UFO sighting and experience how and why small UFOs are built as they are, and why large UFOs are easier to design and construct just from considerations of the power plant. Of course, a 50-mile-long mothership would be more difficult to manufacture if we consider structural requirements. I have seen several of these behemoths, along with many other persons. I have seen the smaller disc-like vehicles also. Note that the common cross-section of all of these vehicles, behemoth and small, to have just one cross-section circular. That is the end of chapter 3 of the Adam and Eve story Aftermath by Jan Thomas. Thank you again so much for joining us. If you enjoy these sessions, uh, please consider donating to our Patreon page. Um, it would be greatly appreciated if you were able to, if anybody was able to just um, help with the production of the show. Take care of yourselves and uh, 